When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 12, or doing you the first. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And I would like to say a very special thank you to my parents, Carlos and Regina, without whose support and encouragement this podcast would not exist today. Thank you for everything. Last episode, we took a tour of the Iberian Peninsula as it stood from the early to mid-9th century in order to do some light reviewing of the material and bring all the factions up to the early 850s AD. And we ended the episode with the death of Hamidu I. This episode, we will take a look at the life and career of his successor, Ordoinu I, and discuss its impact on the trajectory of the Asturian Kingdom, and by extent, the Iberian Peninsula. Hamidu I died in the year 850 AD, and his son, 29-year-old Ordoinu I, succeeded him to the throne. Unlike his father, Ordoinu I's succession was not contested by the Asturian nobility, but of course, support was not unanimous. According to the Chronicle of Alfonso III, Ordoinu faced a major revolt from the Basques in the east of the kingdom. As per usual, our sources don't give us much details on the particulars of this revolt. For example, we are not told who the leaders were or what motivated them. All we do know is that it was successfully suppressed. 
But given that the Basque factions had originally been opposed to his father's ascension, it's not much of a stretch to conclude that once again, regional rivalries and interests were behind this uprising. Ordoño I's reign symbolizes a turning point for the Asturian kingdom. He is the first Christian monarch of that realm to have the heretofore unknown advantage of facing an increasingly disunited and weakened Al-Andalus. The three marches we discussed last episode were becoming ever more destabilized with frequent regional revolts, which had the effect of creating new local regimes, some of which looked for Asturian support, thereby losing any neutrality they may have tried to maintain, and so wedged themselves between the Asturian kingdom and the emirs of Córdoba. For the first time, the Christian realm had the ability to begin playing a more active part in the politics of the emirate. And believe me when I tell you that the Asturians took full advantage of this new dynamic. Ordoño would resume the process of expanding the kingdom in an organized and structured way. But instead of expanding laterally east and west, this time the direction of conquest would be southward. Beginning in 855, Ordoño readied his forces and occupied the cities of Leon, Astarga, Tui, and Amaya, which the Chronicle states had long been abandoned. He is then said to have ordered a large-scale fortification program, decking these cities out with new high walls and gates. He also repopulated these cities with a mixture of his own people and immigrants mostly Mozarabs coming from Al-Andalus. In fact, the evidence suggests that Mozarabic emigration may have been triggered or sped up by that whole big incident involving Eulogius and the martyrs of Córdoba. Additionally, this emigration was of great benefit to the Asturian kingdom, as the Mozarabs tended to be cosmopolitan and equipped with a much higher degree of education than the mountain folk of the Asturias. Turning our attention back to the repopulation of the northern cities, archaeological work has shown that both Leon and Astorga had clearly been inhabited before the reign of Ordoño, and they had both maintained their Roman walls in good defensible order. It's important to note here that although the chronicles want to portray these towns and areas as completely abandoned, both archaeologists and historians remain very skeptical of these post-apocalyptic descriptions. So, what's going on here? It's possible that what was occurring was not so much a repopulation of ghost towns, but a bolstering of the existing populations along with the repairing and rebuilding of city defenses. Some of our sources claim that the Muslim populations of these cities were banished by Alfonso I, thus leaving them deserted. But the evidence shows that this was far from being so simple and clear-cut. If we combine both the Christian and Muslim sources and look for macro-trends, 
What they seem to be telling us is that the areas south of the Cantabrian Mountains and along the northern edge of the Meseta were starting to become more important strategic and economic regions, which hadn't been the case for over a century. And add to this the fact that by now, the long-disputed frontier zone of the Ming Valley was part of the Asturian Kingdom and was being repopulated. The balance of power seems to be slightly tilting north. And I imagine that there was a new confidence rising with this power shift, not only within the northern aristocracy, but with the northern population at large. After all, people typically have to believe that they will be safe when moving to a new location. And if these areas are being repopulated, I think it's a safe assumption that the regular, everyday people were seeing things on the ground level that were inspiring confidence in the nobility's ability to defend them. An example of this immigration and integration process is spelled out for us in the earliest document preserved in the cartulary of the Galician Monastery of Samos, dated to 857 AD. In it, Ordoño I gives an existing monastery to two monks, both of whom came directly from Córdoba. Additionally, the grant included several estates and churches, including some in the Mingu Valley, which is one of the data points we have to indicate that the valley was under Asturian control by this time. The chronicle's account of the reign of Ordoño I is dominated by his war against Musa ben Musa of the Benukasi. Though, of course, it does not relate to us any details on how these events unfolded. It states simply that Musa rebelled against the emir of Cordoba, and who, quote, partly by the sword and partly by deception, unquote, made himself the master of Zaragoza, Tudela, Huesca, and Toledo, where he installed his son Lupus as governor. Musa is also said to have, again, partly in battle and partly by deception, to have defeated and imprisoned two Frankish dukes, and later to have defeated and captured two powerful Arab magnates. It's after these victories that the Chronicle claims that he ordered his followers to call him the third king of Spain. However, it's good to note that neither our Frankish or Arab sources make any mention of the capture of the dukes or the magnates. The Chronicle is the only source that makes that claim. But regardless, it's evident that from the late 850s, Musa ben Musa and his family were the masters over most of the middle and upper marches, which incidentally made them the biggest obstacle to Asturian expansion in the northern Meseta. At this point, the chronicles also begin to mention other men besides the king conducting war operations. It's a safe assumption that these were powerful landowners that were tight with the sovereign. This ability of the monarch to delegate such important field commands is rather revealing. It tells us that investing these magnates with so much power 
required a strong central authority that was recognized by the nobility at large. And as a result of expansion, the crown didn't possess the resources to govern the newly conquered lands on its own. So, in reality, the king didn't have much of a choice but to grant certain members of the nobility supreme rule over their territory, so that they could do whatever needed doing without having to wait for a response from the king. In 854, the city of Toledo once again went into open revolt against the Umayyads. When the governor and city leaders learned that the new emir, Muhammad I, was making his way to Toledo at the head of a large army to crush the revolt, they decided to send a request for aid to Ordoño I. Ordoño agreed to help and sent one of his relatives, a Count Gatón, along with a military detachment to Toledo. But Muhammad I was informed of this development, so he came up with a plan to welcome Count Gatón and his forces in style. Muhammad proceeded to array a portion of his troops' invisible battle formation. He then hid the rest of his troops and siege engines cleverly out of sight. Once the emir was satisfied with his troop arrangement, he waited for his prey near Toledo, accompanied only by the small detachment, turning himself into irresistible bait for the Asturians. And in so doing, he gave the Asturians the false impression that they outnumbered the Umayyads. And so, confident in their numbers, they advanced them the emir and his small detachment. When finally, the signal was given, and the Asturian forces charged the Umayyad line. The battle was on. Except that this was no battle. The Umayyad troops, arranged in ambush, suddenly appeared everywhere surrounding the Asturians, where they commenced a wholesale slaughter of both the troops and the inhabitants of Toledo. Those who could, fled, and those who couldn't, perished. So once again, Toledo passed back to Umayyad control. About four years later, in 858, we get a very brief mention of the second Northman attack on the Asturian lands, in an unspecified location on the coast of Galicia. We are told that a Count Pedro came to the rescue and defeated the raiders. The chronicle offers us no details about this Count Pedro. However, there has been speculation of either a Galician origin for the Count, or that he may have been a descendant of one of the Asturian conquerors of years past. Either way, we will probably never know the answer. The conflict between Ordoño and Musa revolved around a fortress that Musa had recently built at Albelda. And this was a big problem for the Asturians, as the strategic placement of this fortress gave Musa control over access from the easternmost territory of the Asturias into the Ebro Valley. This, of course, was absolutely unacceptable to Ordoño, 
And so, in 859, he launched the siege of the fortress. In response, Musa attempted to lift the siege, in alliance with his brother-in-law, Garcia, the king of Pamplona, whose own minor kingdom was under threat by the eastward advance of the Asturians. In the battle that followed, not only was Musa defeated, he also lost his war chest in the process. Seven days later, Albelda itself fell, and, quote, all its warriors were killed by the sword and the place itself was destroyed down to its foundations, end quote. The third king of Spain was not long for this world, as Musa was wounded in battle and died in either 862 or 863. Shortly after, Musa's son, who was the governor of Toledo, supposedly bent the knee and submitted himself to Ordoño for the rest of his reign. And Ordoño wasn't done yet, as the chronicle goes on to list additional Asturian victories, such as the war against, quote, the king and the people of Coida, unquote, by the name of Zaiti, and against the city of Talamanca del Yarama, near Madrid, and its king, by the name of Museor. And in both cases, the chronicle states that all the warriors were killed and the rest of the population was sold into slavery. And if this is at all accurate, it's really remarkable, because it means that in the 860s, Ordoño was not only the leading power on the Meseta, but was raiding with impunity across the Middle March killing or forcing the submission of local Muslim warlords and Umayyad governors. However, our Arab sources tell us a different story. While they do mention the war between the Asturias and the Kingdom of Pamplona around 860, they make no mention of a battle taking place in Albelda, and critically, Musa ben Musa is reported as being fatally wounded, not in a battle against Ordoño, but in a failed attack on Guadalajara and its governor, Ibn Salim, in 862. The Muslim sources also report that in 863, an Umayyad army led by one of the emir's sons attacked and destroyed the fortresses of Alva and massacred civilians, as well as burning trees and crops. Supposedly, a counterattack was then organized and led by Ordoño's brother, a guy who is never even mentioned in the Asturian Chronicles. Either way, he was defeated in, quote, a great massacre, unquote, in which no less than 19 counts were killed. Two years later, the emir ordered a second expedition into Alva, where the remaining strongholds were destroyed. And just like the last time, a counterattack was launched, this time led by, quote, Rodrigo, Prince of the Fortresses, unquote, which may have meant that he was the Count of Castile. But once again, this was another disaster for the Asturians, resulting in a, quote, horrible massacre, unquote where the emir's army allegedly took 
20,472 heads. The following year, in 866, a third expedition was sent to the same region. And since such great death and destruction took place the previous year, there simply was no one left to resist the Emirates army, who apparently made sure to leave Alva as desolate as possible. Well, that's quite a different version of events to those of the Asturian Chronicle. So what can we make of this? As we already know, we cannot take our sources too literally, as exaggerations, omissions, and outright fabrications are par for the course. And to complicate things further, these two cultures were not particularly interested in or even well informed about each other. And they definitely had no interest in recording losses they suffered or victories gained by their enemies, even if those victories were over someone else. Because you have to always remember that victory in battle was still seen as the ultimate sign of divine approval. And therefore, the greatest legitimizer of rule a monarch could hope for. And with all that in mind, the course of action we can take in this situation is to once again combine the two narratives. And perhaps then, we can see a clearer picture of these events. My personal opinion is that it's much more likely that the Asturians and the Umayyads were trading blows with each other in different fields of operations with varying results for each, rather than one being dominant over the other. In his last years, Ordoinu was debilitated by gout. He died on May 27, 866. He was buried with his predecessors in the church of Santa Maria in Oviedo. As we have seen throughout the episode, the Asturian kingdom was by this time a different animal than it had been. No longer was it simply surviving by hugging the northern mountains. It had been slowly restructured to carry out a methodical expansion to the south, to lands that were politically independent, both from the Muslim south and from the Christian north which made them quite desirable for the nascent and growing Asturian nobility. On the death of Ordoño in 866, the western border was extended by the river Minho, using the forts of Tui, Astorga, and Leon, both as its defensive anchors and as its offensive jumping-off points. The board was now set, and all the pieces were in place, ready for the next player. And so, Ordoño's son, Alfonso III, took his seat and prepared to make his move. Thanks for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.